Morning everyone, morning morning. How are we doing? Third day in for some of you. Yeah, good. Well thank you for turning up. Um, this is a question and answer session and it is being recorded. Yeah, so if you've got questions, great, because otherwise it's going to be a short session. <laughs> but what I'll do is I'll repeat the question the best I can and then I'll do my best to answer it. So for those of you that don't know, my Ask Paul Kirtley series, is it's, it's a video series and it's a podcast series. So basically, I got to a point where people were sending me lots of questions via email, Facebook in particular, and I just wasn't having time to answer them. And a lot of the questions were the same questions, week in, week out, about tarps, about fires, about bow drill, about cordage, all sorts of things. And rather than me writing sort of several paragraphs to somebody occasionally, I thought, well, it would be valuable for me to put this out for more people to consume it. So I started experimenting with doing a question and answer show, and I've been doing it for more than two years now. Um, I, on average, put one out about every two weeks. So this is episode 53 of Ask Paul Kirtley that you are part of. So thank you for being part of that. So it's an open forum, it's an open floor for questions and I'm going to try and get as many done as I can. What time's the finish time on this one? Half 11, wow. Hope you've got a lot of questions. Right, first question, here. Um, when did you first start traveling around the world? When did I first start traveling around the world? Um, I didn't do a huge amount of traveling until I was about 18. I went to Canada for the first time when I was 18, after I did my A-levels, and that was a real experience. I went to British Columbia, went to the Rockies, traveled around a bit, that was fantastic, and that made me want to go back to, want to, go back to Canada. And then, yeah, I've done a lot of traveling since then, um, sort of shorter trips in Europe and Scandinavia, and then longer trips further afield, Australia, Africa. North America and yeah I, I still only feel like I've seen a tiny tiny proportion of the world so I would what I would say is you're you're young I'd encourage you to as soon as you can start going out and, and seeing different places and there's already been a, a few uh, presentations around different aspects of bushcraft this weekend and one of the themes that came out of Jason's yesterday was it changes your perspective it gives you a broader view of the world and I think at the moment not to get too political, I think having a broader view of the world and being a bit ac more accepting of different cultures might be a good thing. We're sort of getting a little bit more insular. I'm not just talking about Brexit, I'm just talking about people in general. Everybody seems to be shrinking back. And personally, from having travelled around the world a lot, it gives you different views of different cultures and you appreciate the fact that people are coming at the same thing from different angles. So I'd encourage you to travel as much as possible. It's, it's been a very valuable part of my life. Thanks. Go as soon as you can, earlier than I did. Next question. Yes? Paul, you produce a huge amount of media content on the internet, the podcasts, the YouTubes. How long does it take to produce these different types of productions and to publish them? How do you find the time? <laughs> so question is, I put, apparently I put a lot of stuff out on the internet. How do I find the time? How does it 
how do I uh, manage it? How long does it take? Um, I don't feel I put out as much out as I would like to, frankly. Um, if you could have a look in my secret notebook of, uh, <laughs> of blog ideas and article ideas and things I'd like to make videos about, you'd see there's a big backlog there. Um, and so I have a lot more ideas about things that I'd like to do than I can do. Um, one of the reasons why Ask Paul Kirtley has been successful is I hit upon a formula that people enjoy and that they like, that they can interact with, but also isn't massively onerous on me to, to produce. Um, producing a, you know, I've, I've played around with producing sort of video blogs of things, but the editing process takes a long time and it also cuts into what you're doing. So you have to have a real clear vision of what you're trying to do if you're, say, filming a trip. Um, because you're not just doing the trip then, you're doing the trip and trying to get shots and you know, it, 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 it is, that's time consuming and it does change things. So I tend not to film stuff when I'm with customers because the focus is on the, on the student, on the client, the person who's been guided, the person who's been taught. So we tend to just post a few snapshots, Instagram, Facebook, that type of thing. The videos tend to come more from what I'm doing, but even so, I do a lot more things on my own, hikes, canoe trips and whatnot, than I ever managed to put out anything about. Um, and that's just lack of time, frankly. Um, so there's, there's some really good hikes I've done in Scotland in the last few years that I've got half-written articles about, or like drafts or notes, but I've never put them out into anything. Um, so it's difficult, is what I'm trying to say. But the reason this, one of the reasons this works is it, it's not formulaic, but there is a, there's a workflow. Um, and there isn't a lot of editing required. Um, basically sit in front of a camera, talk, export the audio as a podcast, put the video online. And that works. But even so, I, I go through periods where I just don't get them done. Um, but also, I, I work hard. <laughs> That's, you know, I, I, I work long hours. Um, you know, I'll be away for a bit and then I'll come back and I'll, I'll do a 90 hour week, writing, editing, getting stuff online, getting stuff ready to go online for when I'm away again. And anybody who does do stuff online, whether it's within Bushcraft or for their business, have a look at the automation tools that you can use. You know, there's, there's a few neat little timing tools that you can use, some of them built in, like YouTube, for example, you can post a video on YouTube and then you can say, publish this in two weeks time. And then you can go off and do a canoe trip while people are still getting your content. So that is part of how we manage to do it, is that we batch it and then we drip feed it out. But I don't put anywhere near as much stuff out as I'd like to. So, just, so if the question is about putting your own stuff out, that just, just work at it, work at it, keep going, find stuff that works, find stuff that resonates with people as well. You know, you, you monitor what, you know, you can post certain types of things and people, it's just like tum tumbleweed. Nobody's responding to it. And you can post other things and People are commenting, liking, sending you in more questions, and then you know that you've hit upon something that works. So part of it's experimentation, finding what works. Cool. Thank you. Good question. Next question. Hand up there. Yeah. Have you ever had any memorable occasions where you've had to tap out, maybe go back to civilization or uh, a situation you've not been able to overcome for some reason? Tap out. So the question is, have I had any memorable occasions where I've had to tap out, where I've been in a wild place or been on a trip and had to come back to civilization, um, as uncivilized as it can seem sometimes? Um, well, when, you make, when, you, when you're making journeys, you're always making an assessment of 
what what the conditions are versus what the plan is. And it's you're probably after like horror stories, survival stories. I don't know. I, I can't really give you much in that vein. But you know, simple things like um, spoons. Paul Nichols, who works with me, we did a trip on the River Tay recently, and we planned to go and do this trip for a year. Um, we said we'll go and do the Tay system. We'll start high as high up as we can. So higher up than than Loch Tay, we'll start up at the top of the docket, um, paddle down the docket into into Loch Tay, along Loch Tay, down the whole Tay River system to Perth, where it becomes tidal. And then there's 42 kilometres of estuary with some of the strongest tidal waters in the UK, some of the fastest tidal waters in the UK. But the idea was to once we got there leave Perth at high tide, get to Broughty Ferry, which is where we're going to get out at low tide, and it's 42 kilometres between the two. It's high tide at Perth at, at three, and low tide at Broughty Ferry at eight. So we had five hours to do 42k. So if you can paddle five k an hour on the flat, and then get a bit with the tide, you'll cover that distance. Yep. So that was the plan. But in the UK, the, the, the prevailing wind tends to be westerly, southwesterly, westerly, northwesterly. So we start this journey up at Crean Larich, which anybody walk the West Highland Way here or been up that way? Yeah, so you know, you know where Crean Larich is. It's quite far west and we should have had really a tailwind on average in the UK. But we had this lovely fine weather that we had in early May had an easterly wind attached to it. So we had a headwind right at the start. And then there wasn't much snow in Scotland this, this winter, and it's been quite dry in April, so there wasn't a lot of water in the docket. So we were really slow to start off with. We had not much water, quite a lot of headwind. And by the end of day two, we were where we should have been really at the end of day one, where we'd hoped, so we'd lost a day in the first two days because we'd had to get out of our boat and, and drag it a lot. It just, there wasn't enough water to float the boat in some places. And that's not a horrendous, you know, it wasn't a survival situation, it wasn't horrendous, beautiful sunny weather, it was a ni nice time. And we camped in a lovely place that we wouldn't have camped otherwise. But the point was, we were then behind time, where, you know, our plan, you know, that we wanted to be on, we had some flexibility, but then you're having to sort of reassess all the time. What's the weather conditions today? Can I make up the time? Can I make up the distance? Etc. 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 So to cut a long story short, we had a headwind most of the way because you're going east, a little bit south, east, and most most of the, the lateral travel is 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 um, west to east, and we had a headwind. So we get to Perth, and we're still pretty much a day behind. And we'd made the assessment before we got there that we were going to get off at Perth because there was still that headwind and there was no way we were going to go onto that estuary, 42 kilometres of strong tidal estuary with a headwind, fighting against the headwind when we really needed no wind or a wind behind us. So that's, a, that's an occasion where we just said, live to fight and we'll come back to fight another day because we could have tried it. We could have been macho and gone, yeah, let's dig in and do it. But we probably would have ended up having to get off somewhere you know, random, and then work ourselves, you know, we, we would have not made the distance, and then you're in a world of difficulty. So often you're, you're trying to preempt getting into those situations where it is a tap out, it's just you're avoiding it in the first place. But that would be an occasion where it didn't go to plan, but there was no harm done, no foul. Another situation, again, Scotland, I'll keep it to the UK, keep it local. Um, a few years ago, we were doing a walk in Scotland. And it was the idea of, um, 
Matt, who's not here with us at the moment, one of the guys who works with us sometimes, sort of his stag do. Yeah, and most people want to go to Prague or something for their stag do. Um, Matt wanted to walk all the mountains in Scotland over 4,000 feet. Yeah, so there are the Munros, the mountains over 3,000 feet, there's about 280 of those. But the ones over 4,000 feet, there's nine of those. And there's a cluster in the Cairngorms, and there's a cluster around um, Ben Nevis on, on the west near Fort William. And the idea was to start near Aviemore, walk up into the Cairngorms, do the Cairngorm group while camping all the way, carrying all our food, walk right across. It was a stag, so we did stop in Dalwini, go to the distillery, have a bit of a tasting, carried on along Loch Eric, camp near Ben Alder, over the top, out towards the Grey Corries, along the Grey Corries. And we were coming down off Anach Moor, so we'd done about 10 Munros at this point. We'd done all but um, two, of the, two of the peaks that we needed to do. We needed to get on the Calamore Darag Aret and go onto the back of Ben Nevis and then down the tourist path, and we were done. We're coming down Anach Moor, and Matt's knee went, basically. Um, he's had a problem with it in the past, it went, and so we're at the, the, the saddle between Anach Moor and Kanmoor Derag, and we're making a decision, and it's starting to rain. Matt's like, I can probably get up the hill, up onto the um, arete. We're at 800 meters, we need to get up to about 1300 meters, or we could escape into the top of Glen Nevis, or we could escape down to the ski center, um, the Anach Moor ski center. Um, I've done Ben Nevis before, Matt had been up Ben Nevis before, Henry hadn't been up Ben Nevis before and he was keen to get up there and it was a really difficult decision particularly for Matt because it was his idea to do the hike in the first place. Um, we wanted to complete the 4000s in one go. Um, Matt thought he could get up and along the arete which was the technically difficult bit but then it was just the 1350 meters of descent down the tourist path on the far side of Ben Nevis which was going to be a problem. It was a difficult decision to make because you come so far, you've been walking for a week, um, you've had a great adventure, but we made this grown-up decision to take the less steep route, the least steep route down to the ski centre and then call a taxi to take us to, to Fort William. So we failed at the kind of last step. And that sounds like an easy decision to make, but it really isn't. You've invested time, you've bought kit, you've sorted your food, you've taken time out of work, um, you've had a great adventure, it's been going well, and then right on the last afternoon of the last day of the trip, somebody has an injury. They, it, it's not something where you'd have to call Mountain Rescue, but you have to make a grown-up decision. So there's lots of things like that I could tell you about where you just have to be mature about it. And one of the best pieces of advice, it's the same with the estuary, it's the same with the mountains, is they will be there tomorrow. Yeah, so just make sure you are. Just make, but it's very easy to kind of push and push and push and get into a situation where you then do need external help. So lots and lots of situations like that that I could think of. That's another article about that walk that I've still not finished. So, <laughs> but you've got the story. Thanks for the question. Next question. Here, Danny. Um, I'm looking to buy a, a uh, axe today. Right. And I was just going to ask you what should I look for? Okay, so Danny said he's looking to buy an axe today. What should he look for? Well, my question to you would be, what do you want it to do? Well, an all-round axe. So an all-round axe. So I, 
here's a, here's, a, here's a shameless plug. You could come and watch my axe demo at one o'clock or whenever, it, just after one. Um, and I'll talk through different sizes of axes. But as a general purpose, bushcraft, campcraft axe, it's difficult to go wrong with what Grand's Force call their small forest axe. Um, Vetterlings have a similarly named axe, similarly sized axe. Halter fours make a similarly sized axe. So depending on exactly what your budget is, quality of finish that you want. Um, one of those, that sort of half length handle. So basically if I hold my hand out, fingertips to sternum would be full length handle or helve on the axe to about my elbow is about half, half length. About one and a half pound head, so 750 grams on those. Quite wieldy, you can use it one-handed. Um, one-handed at the end of the handle, you can strangle it right up near the head for carving. It's, it's um, long enough just to use two-handed as well, so you can do some felling, it's, you can do some limbing, splitting, etc. But it's small enough and compact enough to go on the side of a rucksack, inside a rucksack. It's not so heavy that you'd leave it at home when you really needed it. So that that's, would be my starting point as a general purpose outdoor axe for camp, for journeys, whatever you want to do. Gives you a lot of flexibility, but then you could make a decision or if, if that wasn't big enough and had enough chop, you could go up a size or if it was a bit too heavy for what you wanted, if you wanted it more just for splitting and light work, you could maybe go down a bit of a size. So, but that would be the starting point. And you can see why they're so popular because they're so, they're so portable and they're, they're very flexible in their application as well. So that would be where I, I would start looking. Cool. Next question. Can't see. Red T-shirt. Yeah, well, so the question is, um, used to do a lot of walking, mountain walking, going up and down hills, both have limited mobility now. What advice would I give for getting out, for people with limited mobility, for people who want to do bushcraft in particular? Um, well, one of the nice things about bushcraft, were you at Sarita's talk yesterday? No, okay. One of the nice things about bushcraft is it, it, it the benefits of, of getting out into the woods, the benefits of, in terms of taking on the skills, don't actually require you to go too far. Yeah, you, can, you can go to a local woods, you don't have to travel too far into the woods to be surrounded by trees, to have the resources that you need. Um, it's not like you're doing a backpacking trip where you have to make, you know, you walk in the West Highland Way and you've got to make 20 miles that day. You know, you can go into the woods you can relax in the woods and then you can work on particular skills. So you can get a lot of those benefits from just going to the woods and working on things. So what I was talking about yesterday was working on skills that really will boost your outdoor life. So focus on the things that allow you to do the things that you want to do and really work on those rather than trying to be what I said yesterday, a bushcraft butterfly where you, you flit around from one skill to the other without really owning any of them. Just think about, okay, we're gonna to go to the woods quite a lot. Most of what we're gonna do is relatively static. You know, we'll maybe day walks, just or go and have a base camp, walk out from there, do a bit of foraging, whatever it is that, that floats your boat. But then what skills do we need around that? Okay, well, we need to be quite efficient with putting our camp up. We need to be good with our fires. We're always gonna need a fire. We can, be, we can still work very hard on, you know, feather sticks, um, et cetera, et cetera. You know, all of those skills that allow you to get fire going easily, whatever the weather, 
you know, you can really work on your camp craft, you can make really good pot hangers, you can do all of those things by collecting resources that aren't that far away from you in, the, in, in a, an average broadleaf piece of woodland in the UK. You can find hazel, you can find alder, you can find willow, you can do those things, birch, you know, those common widespread species, learn to recognize them, learn how to use them, you, and you get the benefits of being in that, being in nature, getting the green, you know, there is, there's so much research that says just looking at green is beneficial for your health. Looking at pictures of the woods, you know, even if you put pictures of the woods on here, on the screen, it's beneficial. Um, speaking of putting green things on the screen, there we go. Um, it's not a tree, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, there's plenty of research that suggests that just being in nature is very, very good for you. And then, so why I was asking about Sarita as well, that she was reinforcing that. There's more research being done now specifically about the benefits of taking young people out into the woods and doing things with them there in terms of their mental health. And so it, it, it's, it's very clear, I think, that you get you know, the benefits in terms of much of what it can give you just by going to the woods and doing the activities. So that, that would be one thing that I would say. Don't be discouraged by the fact that you can't necessarily walk up and down Ben Nevis or um, Snowdon or wherever anymore. In terms of getting into the woods and doing it, you'll, you'll, get, you'll get the benefits. Next question. What would be my preferred grind on a general purpose camp knife? Just a fine flat bevel, just what you get on a mora, something like that. Um, I don't get too obsessive about knives, to be honest with you. Um, and I come at it from a couple of perspectives. Is I've used a fair few different ones. And what you generally find is that what you use, you get used to. And as long as it's sharp, you can ultimately you can do the things that you want to do with it. And I'll give you an example. Um, I typically grew up learning bushcraft skills using Mora's, you know, Mora Clipper or the, the previous versions, flat grind on it um, for making something like feather sticks. We'll stick with that example, carving, making feather sticks. I then used to work with Lars Falt a bit in the north of Sweden. He had a knife that was basically a Faltneven. F1, with it, but it had a, a wooden handle. And whenever I tried to make feather sticks with his knife, um, I struggled because I wasn't used to the grind. Yeah, it had quite a pronounced convex grind and I couldn't do it, but he could because he was used to it. So I would, take, I would have to practice with that to get as good as he was with his knife, but then he would have to practice with my knife to get as good as I was with my knife. So the important thing is that it's sharp. I would say generally for most people a, flat, a flatter grind, just a single straight flat bevel down to the cutting edge is easier for a lot of what we do. There's a reason a lot of the Scandinavian um, carving knives have that similar grind because they're good for wood carving and part, a, lot, a big part of what we do in bushcraft, you know, whether it's making pot hangers, feather sticks, bow drill sets and what have you, it's carving wood. So that style of grind works very well for wood carving. It's not the most ideal grind for butchery, but as long as your knife's sharp enough, you can do the butchery jobs with it as well. Fish filleting, it's not the ideal grind, but again, it will do. So again, going back to the general purpose axe question, it's a very flexible um, knife. It's good for woodcraft, and as long as it's sharp, you'll be able to do the other things. So that, that's my personal choice generally, just have that fine flat grind, not too convex, certainly not um, hollow ground, 
because you, you end up with weakness, in my experience, towards the edge because you don't have a lot of metal there. So if you're battening and things, you tend to take chunks out of it. So that's the, that's the answer. Next question, here. Um, I'm at the stage now where I want to start going out while camping. I've got the kit together. Uh, but I'm struggling to find permissions and places to go and practice what I've got Okay. So the question is, he's got the kit and the willingness to go wild camping, but he's struggling to find permissions, places to go, what would be my advice? Well, that's a common, common question, and it's one of the things, one of the questions that I've had a lot over the years, and it's a tough one, because in England and Wales, the access laws are such that it's actually quite difficult to go onto land and just camp without permission, strictly speaking. Even in places where it's tolerated, like you know, upland areas of the Lake District, Peak District, etc. Strictly speaking, you should still have landowners' permission. Scotland, the law is different. Yep. So, um, if you want to just start going and wild camping and journeying, you can. There's plenty of upland areas in the UK where you can go, and nobody's really going to say anything, other than if you start wandering across MOD ranges. You know, and there are some big areas, you know, Northumberland, um, over into the Eden Valley and places like that, and up into Northumberland, up near Kieldo, there's some big military ranges up there, and you don't want to be wandering around on there for your own safety, yeah, as much as anything, whether firing tank shells and things. But um, generally, any upland area in England and Wales is a, is a good starting point in terms of thinking, I can probably go there without anybody objecting. If you want somewhere, where, you know, a piece of woodland where you're going to go to regularly to use, you know, to practice skills. So if you're talking about wild camping in that sense, rather than going to a campsite, then I would suggest trying to form a relationship with a landowner because then um, you can go when you want. You don't have to worry. You know, we can all go and go stealth camping. We've probably all done it at some stage or thought about it, but. You, you're always really closing down what you're doing. You can't be very expansive about what you're doing. You're always looking over your shoulder, keeping your fire small or using a little burner or what have you. And it, it's like almost like you're on your own little mini escape and evasion weekend, which could, could be fun. But equally, if you want, to work on your, you want to work on your skills, you want to be able to go and relax and just as we've been talking about, go into the woods, find the resources, set up camp, work on skills. So I would say form, try and form a relationship. And it's the same sort of question as if, say, you wanted to go air rifle shooting. You, know, you want to go and, you know, when I was a lad, I was quite, I didn't do a lot of shooting of live things, but I was, you know, used to read the air gun magazines and stuff. And one of the common questions in there was always, how do I find somewhere to go and shoot? And the answer is the same now as it was then. Go and knock on some doors, speak to some farmers, try and work out who owns the woodland. And I can give you a couple of examples big and small. Um, one guy I know was just walking in some woodland, it had a public footpath through it, and he was collecting a few resources, um, not, not sort of damaging the area, I think he was collecting some holly for a wreath or something, and the landowner happened to be walking through there, he got into a conversation with her about nature, bushcraft, etc., and she said, oh well if you want to come down and stay over, that's fine. Um, just don't bring too many people that want to, because what she didn't want was for other people to think that you could just go down there and camp. So she was just like, well, go, in, go into the woods, away from the path, don't bring too many people, don't leave a mess, that's fine. So that's one example where he had a conversation, you know, he was lucky, was right time, right place, right attitude from the landowner, but 
that worked for him. He had a conversation with the landowner, showed her that he had an interest in nature. He wasn't just a Yahoo that was going to throw beer bottles around and like set fire to stuff. And you know, and that's what a landowner is concerned about. You know, um, the other thing landowners tend to be concerned about is if there's some sort of shooting going on. And it could be that they don't want you disturbing what's going on in terms of they might have pheasants down and whether or not you agree with pheasant shooting, the fact of the matter is a lot of small woodlands in the UK have got pheasant shooting going on them. And so they don't, the gamekeeper or the person who manages the shoot doesn't want you in there scaring the birds around. That's one, and they'll just say no, and you just have to accept that. They, there's, a, there's also quite a lot of deer stalking goes on in the UK. We just don't notice it so much because we, we don't have to wear blaze orange. You know, there's pretty much any significant piece of woodland in the UK there will be some deer management going on there. And so again, there may be just an issue of people going in there with centerfire deer rifles and not knowing you're there. And that's another reason why the stealth camping can be a little bit iffy sometimes because people do shoot in woodland. Um, you just do need to be careful of that. Um, so again, have, but they, they, they tend to be at set times, they tend to be kind of coming in early on a weekend or something and not doing too, not, not in there all the time. So there'll be, there'll be a time where nobody's doing anything, you could go in for a, a couple of days or a couple of nights or something. So again, it's about having a conversation with the landowner, finding out who owns the land. Another example I could give you is a guy that I know, come and, he'd come and done a couple of courses with us over the years, was interested in getting his own piece of woodland to practice his own skills initially, maybe do a few things with his family. There was a corner of woodland that he drove backwards and forwards past on his way to work every day, and it's like, that looks like a nice piece of woodland. Looked at the map, worked out it was part of a large estate, spoke to the estate manager, eventually got a meeting with him. They went up there. He was the, the estate manager was ex-military. They got up talking a little bit about survival skills and bushcraft skills. And Mark just showed him. He says, well, this is how I have a fire. This is the sort of size fire I'm going to have. This is how I clear the space. This is how I'll have a fire. This is what I'll do to clear up afterwards. And showed him how respectfully he would be of the place. And the estate manager said, well, you're going, to be, you're going to leave the place tidier than you found it, and you're a lot tidier than a lot of the people who work on the estate. So no problem. So he, ha he formed that relationship then, and he's been going there ever since. And he's actually got his own little, he, he actually teaches kids there now as well. So yeah, th those are just some ideas. Yep. Um, going to, you know, if you live in a country area, just going to the local pub and finding out who owns which bit of woodland. Um, there's, a, there's a pub that I stay in when I go um, canoeing, canoe training in Wales with Ray Goodwin and every time I go in that pub the guys who run the local shoot are in there and I chat with them every time. Yeah, there's, there's a couple of old guys, they've normally had about seven pints by the time I get in there and they're very friendly and they always come over and sort of try and tell me bad jokes and do crap coin tricks and things. Um, but they're really good blokes and those sorts of guys are the guys you kind of need to get to know sometimes because then they're like do you know any woodland and it's like well you can't come and use ours because we've got pheasants in it but Dave Jones down the road he's got a piece of woodland on his farm he's not doing anything with so that that it's still doing the legwork at the end of the day but hopefully that gives you a, you and everybody else a few ideas yeah cool yeah or just go to Scotland <laughs> next question yeah how do you make decent coffee on expeditions? Right. I can't give you a practical demonstration, but um, there is a technique that we've come upon. Um, so you need fresh ground coffee, the sort of thing you put in a cafetiere. So if you like your coffee, 
cafetiere coffee. Taylor's Rich Italian is always a good one. Um, but what you need is just a standard billy can, and it works better with a tall, narrow, cylindrical billy can than a wide, flat, sort of Coleman, Eagle uh, products type pan. You need a bale on it, and basically boil some water up in a kettle or another pot, put, the, put about two centimeters of coffee in the bottom, pour water into it, do it Bedouin style, so do it from a great height, get some oxygen into it, and then let it, put the lid on, let it um, stew for a couple of minutes like you would a cafetiere before dropping the, or French press if you use that language, before you drop the, um, drop the filter, um, do that. And then basically you've got a liquid with all these, all these things suspended, all these coffee grounds suspended in there. And if you just drink it, you're going to get a mouthful of grounds. And there's all sorts of tricks which I've been told about over the years. Um, you should drop a stone in it and it, it shocks it and put, put cold water in the top and it, it will take, as it drops, it will take all of the grounds with it. Um, take a hot stick from your fire and stick it in the top and that will shock it and create a convection current and take the grounds to the bottom. All that does is put ash in your coffee, that, that last one. I tried it, it doesn't work. Yeah. Um, so the best method is if, if you think about you're driving your car along the road and you hit something and you haven't got your seatbelt on, the car stops and you keep moving inside the car yeah, and you hit, the, you hit the steering wheel or what have you. Um, it's the same principle with the coffee grounds inside the liquid. Yeah. If you drop, not literally just throw it on the floor, but the method, where's spoons? I need spoons to limber up to do this. Yeah. But basically you drop the pot and as you stop at the bottom, the liquid can't go anywhere, but the grounds can move within the liquid, so it just encourages them to keep going. So you drop it a few times, yeah, so quite gentle on the way up, drop at the bottom, and the, the grounds will go to the bottom. And then you just line the cups up, and then you just pour, rather than sloshing it backwards and forwards, and you pour. And I learned that, and the, 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 where I learned that from was I was doing a ski tour in Norway. And there's a couple of funny bits to this. I was doing a ski tour in Norway, and we'd started off at a place called Haukelisetter, um, which is just at the south end of the Hardanger Vidder. And we were going south from there into the mountains that are south of the Hardanger Vidder. And we were going to a hut, and it was about 28 kilometers out. Um, and we had full packs, and we we're out for five days. And we're skiing, and we stopped for a, a brew break mid-morning, and we noticed there were a group of four or five guys behind us um, you can sort of see dark spots on the trail behind us. And um, being Brits, the Norwegians tend to catch up with you after a while. So it's like they'll probably pass us at lunchtime. So anyway, we skied off, we stopped for lunch. And there was still quite a long way in the distance, a little bit closer. And, oh, they're quite slow for Norwegians. Maybe they're Norwegian. Nor Norwegians. Maybe they're Germans. Yeah, they're quite slow. Maybe they're Germans. Yeah, you get a lot of Germans skiing in Norway as well. Um, so afternoon, again, they're a little bit closer. And they, on our afternoon brew break, they kind of caught up with us. It was the top of a hill. We were quite tired. They caught up with us, and they went past, and they had big packs as well. And they, so they got to the cabin before us. They got in the cab. So they were there when we got there. We had a bit of a chat when we got to. They were staying in the same cabin. Had a bit of a chat with them in the evening. They were nice guys. They were just having a lads' weekend out. You know, sort of. They all had young families, but this, they were all old school friends. This was their. 
this was their sort of weekend away that they did every year in the spring to go out and have a little weekend ski tour. And they had steaks, they had beers, they had all this food. And that's why they'd been so slow, yeah? Because they, they were only out for two nights, but they had like these backpacks full of all this fresh food and that coffee. And so the next morning, um, having had a beer with them, they were generous enough to, even though they'd lugged all this stuff out with, with them, they were generous enough to give us a beer um, the two of us that were, were skiing together and next morning one of them was in the kitchen in this little cabin with a little kettle and he looks like he's doing some kind of exercises with the kettle and I said well do you mind me asking what on earth you're doing and he's like well I'm making the coffee and that's where I learned the technique this coffee dropping technique and I've used it ever since with billy cans in the woods and it, it's the best technique of all the different ones that I've tried that's the best technique and I know I've rambled on about coffee for quite a while there but for those of us that coffee in the woods is important yeah it's important to have all the details good question next question somewhere over here yes many years ago I learned that I hate the taste of puree packs yeah um, yeah I then discovered that vitamin C would negate it but I'm wondering what natural products I can use to that effect you know the pine tea that sort of thing Hmm, good question. So, question is Puritabs, which are chlorine-based tablets, have a nasty aftertaste, a bit like swimming baths, um, not a nice taste. There are neutralizing tablets that you can get for them. Some of you may have used them. And so the question is, what natural products could you use instead? The Puritabs chlorine-based water purification, one of the halide disinfectants, the other one's iodine. And chlorine works well under some circumstances, in sort of narrower circumstances than some other water purification chemicals, but it does work well. And one of the benefits is that it's inexpensive, which is important, particularly if you're out for a long time, and it's easy to use, and you can use it for a prolonged period of time, whereas iodine, for example, is contraindicated after about 28 days. You shouldn't use it for more than about 28 days in, in one go. Um, so the question is, what do we do if we don't like the taste of chlorine? And one answer is to buy the neutralizing tablets, but they make a fortune on those neutralizing tablets because all they are is ascorbic acid, and ascorbic acid is vitamin C. And so that gives us two pieces of information which we should be aware of if we're using chlorine for neutralizing the taste, uh, so neutralizing the pathogens. Um, first one is that um, ascorbic acid, vitamin C, doesn't just get rid of the taste. It doesn't just neutralize the taste of the chlorine, it actually stops it working properly. So you don't want to be mixing them from the start. You need to let the chlorine work and then you put the neutralizing agent, whatever it is, in. Um, secondly, is that you're best off doing that in, say, a mug rather than in the bottle where you're putting the tablets because if there's residue of vitamin C in the, the container that you're then treating more water later on, it may reduce the effectiveness of the chlorine. So that's one thing to be aware of. And you can use drinks powders. So I know it's not the answer to the question, but just to give the overview, you can use drinks powders, you know, those little powdered drinks that um, for, for uh, rehydration, that type of thing, um, sports, the, the sports ones, 
they work pretty well. The type of things you get in the you used to get in the MOD ration packs, those sports drinks, they've got a vitamin C in them. That will get rid of the taste of chlorine, yeah. um, but it will also stop chlorine working properly. Um, so what can we use out in the woods? Well, stuff with vitamin C. So your suggestion would be a possible one. So pine needle tea is rich in vitamin C. So not only will the pine mask the flavor, but the vitamin C content would work against the, the chlorine and, and neutralize it. So anything with vitamin C, um, rose hips are very high in vitamin C. So I would look at maybe using rose hips as a potential. Rose hip tea is quite pleasant. Just take the, uh, take the fibers out the middle, the itchy seeds out the middle. Um, any lads here who put rose hip seeds down the back of their mates at school back in the day, quite a good natural itching powder as well. Yeah, so wash, open, open out the rose hips, wash out the hairy seeds from the middle, chop up the rose hips, pop them in, steep them in hot water. That's quite a pleasant tea in the autumn. So anything like that that has good amounts of vitamin C in would work in the same way as the neutralizing tablets for sure for sure and so we can look at we can you know i don't know how much vitamin c there is in wood sorrel but I, wood sorrel is a nice flavor that would mask it as well um, so flavor some stuff elderberries any of the fruits you could make a simple cordial and we've done this in the woods so you get blackberries or elderberries or make a mix of the two reduce them down strain them a bit add a bit of sugar if you've got it, and then you've got basically a homemade cordial, which you can then add to water, and again, that's got a natural vitamin C content. So there's lots of stuff, lots of stuff. Good, question? What got you into bushcraft in the first place? What got me into bushcraft in the first place? So, um, kind of have to give you a, a potted life story, but, um, when I was a kid, so I grew up, I was born in Yorkshire, and then when I was five, we moved to North Wales, and it was fantastic. Um, we had a big garden, sort of on a hillside. My parents were kind of in a bit of a sort of good life phase. You know, this was in the late 70s, so, you know, I think they'd watched too much of Felicity Kendall and Richard Briers, and they were like, we're going to make dandelion wine and, you know, grow potatoes and, you know, that, that type of thing. So there was a little bit of that going on. Um, sort of lifestyle choice on the part of my parents. Um, but we backed onto a big um, forestry commission forest. Literally, there was a barbed wire fence at the back of our garden and over it, and I was in a forest, big forestry commission forest, which basically went for miles and miles and miles. So I grew up between the ages of five and 10, playing in the garden, um, making dens in the Leylandi either in the bottom of the garden and going up progressively, exploring the woods, we used to know all the drainage ditches. We used to play trenches in the drainage ditches and all sorts of stuff. And we knew all the little trails and back trails and stuff. And I think that's one of the reasons why I developed quite a love for the woods, but also an ability to sort of find my way organically, build up mental maps, etc. And that, that was a real key thing. And my parents were keen walkers then, so we'd go walking up Snowdon. And they took me up Snowdon when I was seven. And um, we used to do a lot of walking. And so there was that kind of formative years, but it wasn't bushcraft per se, but I had a, a, a lot of my childhood was outdoors in that sense. And then we moved to the northeast, um, to County Durham, into Teesdale, which is just north of the Yorkshire Dales. Again, rural, nowhere near as forested as where we were in Wales, but rural. And there were a few lads the same age as me, and we used to play in the backwoods. And we used to go, and, again, what boys used to do back in the 80s at least, go and build dens, go and... Um, 
try and set fire to things and you know and whatnot and um, it was clear to my parents at least that I was very interested in that sort of thing you know had wanted a pen knife had a pen knife we used to go and you know whittle things and whatnot so I got a copy of Lofty Wiseman's survival handbook when I was 13 not long after it came out and my mates and I used to try and do stuff from this you know let's try and make some traps or build a shelter or make a fish trap out of a water bottle or whatever, all these different things we used to try. So the, there was that, you know, we used to actually try, well, not very well, but you know, we used to try things, make things, we, we, we made little tobacco survival tins and, and all of that and all of that stuff. And we were always out and about, you know, it was only, I had, a, I, I was bought a ZX Spectrum 48K in about, I don't know, whenever it was, 87 or something. But we only ever used to play on it when it was raining. You know, we're outside the rest of the time. And, and so I, I had a childhood, you know, where I was outdoors a lot and I was interested in those survival skills. I didn't know the word bushcraft at that point. And then I got into mountain biking, I got into hiking, you know, in my later teens. I then went to Edinburgh University and got into hiking in the Highlands. Um, and a real love of that landscape as well. I used to do quite a lot of mountain bike racing back then. And so I had this, you know, outdoor stuff. And then I, um, to cut forward a little bit, into my 20s, I'd sort of become a little, you know, I was working, I was working in London, I did a maths degree, I was working in finance, and I was, I was still in my holidays going up to Scotland, doing hiking trips and whatnot, going up to my parents' weekends, mountain biking around the northeast. But there was something, and, and what it was, was the hiking trips. So I was going and I had an MSR stove, I had a tent, I had everything I needed in my backpack and then I was going and starting to do trips in places like the Pyrenees and I, something at the back of my mind was like I should probably have the, some of those skills we played around with as kids I should probably have some of those that work now because I'm going to more and more remote spots a lot of it's on my own I'm not very good at lighting fires really as well as I could be I don't really know much about what I can eat if I don't have enough food and all of these things. And there was another real polarizing thing for me. I was doing a trip in the Pyrenees with a friend of mine from university and we were camping in this lovely meadow and there was an old derelict barn at the back. And I had to wander around and, and where the slates had slid off the roof at the back, it was like a little rockery. And in amongst this were growing all these wild strawberries, lovely little tiny wild strawberries. Have you ever had wild strawberries? Yeah, super packed with flavour. So much more flavoursome than the sort of mushy big strawberries you get from the stores. And um, so I was super excited and I went and got my mug and I filled up probably about half a litre of these wild strawberries and I went back to my mate Mike and I said, Mike, Mike, I found these, found these strawberries. It's fantastic. You know, there's and he's like, Are you sure they're strawberries? They look really, they look a bit small for strawberries. I'm like, no, they're wild strawberries. And I knew there were wild strawberries for absolute sure because we had wild strawberries in the garden in North Wales. They, they grew in the area. So again, my parents were keen gardeners. So this is why I'm telling you the story because I realized I knew stuff because of, of that. And then Mike didn't want to eat them. I didn't twist his arm because I'm like, fine. If you don't want to eat them, mate, I'm going to eat them all because I know how good they are. So I ate the, the strawberries, but it got me thinking, what else is there around here? that I don't know about, that I could also be nibbling on, foraging along, along the way. So that was one spur for me to learn a lot more about trees and plants and foraging. That was a real a key moment where I thought on that trip, I need to know more about what I can eat in this environment and the, the environment in general. 
And then also the survival skills backdrop was another thing that was blurring around in my mind of I need more fallback skills for when I'm doing these trips so that or just so that I can light a campfire efficiently etc. So I actually then I had some old survival magazines when I was a kid and there was an old Lofty Wiseman used to have a school in Devon and there was a little small ad in the back of this and I wrote off to the PO box and I said do you still do this and I got a little letter back saying no it was written in the third person Lofty doesn't do this anymore but because I was a nerd and I used to buy the, used to get the survival aids catalogue one of the few survival suppliers back in the day and it had all the different knives in and it had the Wilkinson sword knife designed by Ray Mears even though he doesn't like people knowing that and it had the Lofty Wiseman survival knife that was like the big um, machete in it and it had his signature on it and I was like that's Lofty's writing you know because I, I recognised the writing from the signature from looking at the pictures of the knife and I was like that well, Lofty's replied to me but he wrote he did it in, Lofty doesn't do this anymore but so anyway so I was searching for someone to teach me the skills of the type that Lofty could teach and in the end um, just by chance I found um, Woodlaw's website um, back in the day and it was literally just a page that said these are the sorts of things we do right off to this PO box we'll send you a brochure so I got a brochure this was in about 97. Thought these look these look quite nice courses, um, but I had trips planned. I already had trip hiking trips and other things planned. So it wasn't till about 99 or 2000 I started doing some bushcraft courses, and I'd already started doing some reading around trees and plant ID and all sorts of things around bushcraft. I'd got hold of Mears' books as well. I got some other woodcraft and camping books, and I was starting to do my own study. And then I started doing some courses. And so it was a sort of gradual progression to that point. And then in 2003, I did an Arctic course with Mears and Falt, um, Ray and Lars up in north of Sweden. And on, that, um, on the way back from that, Ray asked me if I would go and assist him on UK courses. So I started assisting on UK courses. And then a couple of years down the line, they offered me a full-time job as, as course director, which I did until 2010. So it's, it, it's kind of been a very organic thing you know at what point along that line did I get into bushcraft I I don't know was it when my parents showed me wild strawberries when I was five or six was it when I was with my mates when I was 13 doing stuff out of Lofty's book I don't know it's it's been an constant it's been the single constant interest in my life if, if, I, if I look back on it the thread right through lots of other things around it but that's that's how I've got to where I am in terms of what instigated and there were a few key moments there which I've which I've shared but hopefully that wasn't too dull <laughs> we've all got our own paths into these things that's that's the thing yeah nobody's going to be the same question Martin Repeat that past tough conditions and okay. So the question is, how do you keep people in a positive frame of mind on a, an extended journey, particularly if it's tough conditions and tough terrain? Um, it can sometimes be difficult because everybody has their own highs and lows at different points. Um, but as a, as a leader, you have to be, um, you have to try and exude positivity anyway. Um, 
I'm, as well as teaching bushcraft, I'm also qualified, I'm a UK mountain leader, I'm qualified to lead canoes as well, canoe trips, um, which you do need pieces of paper for, uh, unlike the bushcraft stuff. Um, so, in any of these fields, keeping people motivated in difficult weather, sometimes you have to lead by example. Um, Sometimes bad weather closes people down. They, 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 they kind of become demotivated. Psychologically it has, effect, has an effect, but also physiologically it definitely has an effect. Even if you're wearing a decent waterproof and you're well fed, you're going to become hypoglycemic in less time than if it was the same temperature in a dry day. Yeah, just the evaporative heat loss from the outside of your clothing is going to require more heat from your body, which means you're going to burn through your food more quickly. So making sure people are fed well, recognizing that people are different for starters. What are the triggers that get people down? Often it's um, not being able to see how they can get to the end of something. Um, it's often related to food and, being, and having low blood sugar, it's often related to being cold, it's often related to being tired. So it, it's recognizing where people are at, for starters. Being positive yourself, even if you're feeling the same sort of thing. Um, making sure people um, understand what it is that you're trying to do. Involve them in the process of what you're trying to do, right from the start. So if you come on a trip with me and I just go, right Martin, follow me for two weeks, going this way, follow me, up this hill, down this dale, camp there, you don't feel like you're kind of engaged with it. We're not, we're not working together to do that trip, yet you're just following me around, you know, bedraggled and tired and blister of foot for two weeks and not really knowing why we're making any of the decisions that we're making. As opposed to, okay, Martin, we're going to do this trip. Okay, let's get the maps out before we set off and look at where we're going. Let's look at what the type of terrain we're going to cover and the type of distances we can expect. What are the real sticking points on this? What are the real things that we're going to be concerned about? What are the escape routes? And actually, you're involved. I may have already thought, I will have already thought about all of those things, but you're involved in understanding the overall scope of the journey right from the start. You know, we need to get from here to here. We've got to cover this ground. This should be relatively straightforward. We're concerned about this. This is going to be a hard day. We're going to chunk it up. And in any situation, whether you're in making a journey voluntarily, if you've studied survival psychology, um, if you studied efficiency at work, one of the key strategies that's massively underrated is chunking. It's just chunking stuff up into pieces. Yeah, so rather than going, right, we're going to do this massive task, if you say, right, today we're going to write 500 words. Today we're going to walk from here to that hill over there. And, 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 set, and, and having manageable goals in people's minds so people can understand that it's not just a relentless, endless, when is this going to end thing. It's like, well, we just need to get over there and then we can camp. There's less pressure then, there's less stress, they're more in control. So that's part of it, that keeps them motivated. Understanding the overall scope of the journey, and then also just managing people when they are looking a bit cold, they are looking a bit hungry, and making sure that they're getting another layer on, that they are, that you're putting a shelter up at lunchtime, so that they're not feeling like they're just completely out of their comfort zone. Then that, because at a certain point, if people are completely out of their comfort zone, they want to they go home, they've had enough. 
And the problem is with remote trips is that you can't go home. And then that, that causes a, a sort of dissonance in the sense that I don't want to be doing this anymore, but I've got to do it. And then it's, uh, and that, so you've just got to break it up, let, look after them in the sense of making sure they don't succumb to the environment in a bad way, make sure people are well fed, make sure people are involved in decision making, make sure people are involved in the navigation, make sure people are involved in the decision of where to camp, but with an overall view that you need to cover the distance as well. And then it's their trip that they're motivated to complete more than them just traipsing after you for, for two weeks. So th those are some things. But other times, you, maybe you just have to have a sit down with somebody and say, you know, can we, you know, what's the problem? Can we work through this? What, what can we do to help make this better for you? And then there's other times where you just have to be very directive of like, you, there, now, don't do that. You know, if you're in the middle of some difficult situation where it isn't about having a debate. You have to take a more of a command style of leadership to get people through a difficult piece of terrain, but then you can debrief it afterwards as to why you made the decisions that you did. So that those are, those are some, some thoughts on that. And having a laugh as well, of course. It's one of the reasons we're always laughing and joking. Sense of humor on trips is, even when Ray Goodwin, is Ray Goodwin here yet? Even when Ray Goodwin throws your tea away, you did! <laughs> Even when somebody throws your tea away on a trip at the end of the day because you've been watching the northern lights and you've left your tea by the fire and he throws it away because he wants to pack the barrels so that we can put them out of camp because of the bears and because he wants to go to bed at 8 o'clock. Um, <laughs> <laughs> You can still have a laugh about it rather than punching him in the mouth. Yeah. <laughs> Those are some thoughts on that. We've got time for one more, probably. Unless it's. Yes? Say that again? How can you maintain tree health after you start stripping bark from it? Do you have a particular species in mind? Okay, well, I would say as a general point, don't strip bark from live trees, yeah, because it's a little bit like if I, if I, I haven't got a knife on me now, unfortunately, but if I came down there and I got a couple of my guys to hold your arm and we took the skin off your forearm, you wouldn't be very pleased about it. Um, the tree's not going to feel it in the same way, but what it is going to have exactly the same as you is it's going to be open to infection, for starters. Yeah, and that's an issue. Fungal infection, bacterial infection. Also, most of the nutrients with trees go up through the bark. So, if you ring bark a tree, you quite possibly kill it just because the nutrients don't get any further up. And you see that happening with uh, trees of a certain size. Grey squirrels will take the bark off um, tops of trees and there's various theories as to why they do it. One of it's the uh, possible frustration with certain things that they go and tear bark off. Birch trees, I've seen them do it. I've been walking through the woods and there's all this birch bark on the floor and I'm like, wow, this is great. I'll use that for my fire later on, but you ask the question, why is it there? It hasn't just fallen off the tree and you look up and you can see it's been torn off the trees. And then you can see some of the trees in the area where it's been done a while ago, the tops of the trees are dead because the nutrients don't get any further up. I was speaking to a ranger in the new forest and they've given up trying to control the grey squirrels, but just at well, that point they had, I don't know if they've changed now, this was a few years ago, but they had a real problem with squirrels ring barking beech trees, young beech trees. 
And so it will potentially kill the tree, the live tree, if you take bark off. Um, if you want to take bark for birch bark for fire lighting, for example, some of the bark will be naturally shedding. You know, so it, it, it's, in a, in a sense, if it's already starting to peel off a little bit, you can pull those little thin strands away. But as soon as you start cutting into the tree, you're potentially doing it damage. You're, you're leaving it open to infection. Um, if you're in a woodland, even if you take a little square off, I saw, a, I saw a video on YouTube a while ago of this guy kind of saying, I'm going to show you how to take off some birch bark from a live tree without damaging it. And then he cuts a square off about that size. But he's damaging the tree. Yeah, how can you say that's not damaging the tree? You're probably not going to kill it because it was a small... But the other consideration in doing that is the scar that that leaves... Um, with a birch tree, you've got that silver birch colour on the outside, and then once that silver bark is taken off, you get this sort of burgundy brown, reddy brown scar that forms underneath that is visible so far away. And if you go into a woodland where that's been done quite a lot, it's almost like going into a street that's full of graffiti. It, you know, even though if it isn't, you know, it doesn't have to be initials on the trees, but it's just like people have damaged the trees here, people have been here. We live in a very crowded island in the UK. You know, there's 60 million of us trying to do different things here. And one of the things you should always think about is other users as well. So it's not just about the trees, it's, you know, the aesthetic of the woods, the way that you leave them. How do, how are other people going to view this after, I, after I've left and other people come? Now, there are circumstances where you might want to harvest bark for making containers, um, for making, so ash, um, sweet chestnut, make very good containers. Um, birch, yes, if you can get it thick enough in the UK, but you can't always. Um, and you might want larger strips of bark, birch bark for fire lighting. With birch bark, I would say generally look for dead stuff that's come down because the wood rots away much more quickly than the bark. So unless the wood is massively managed and tidied up, you can remove the bark um, from a dead log and it, it's still got the oils in it that make it a very good fire lighter. So I always collect my birch bark from dead wood on the ground because it's a pioneer species. It doesn't live very long. They tend to fall down quite quickly and you, you're normally going to, and they're common and widespread, so you'll find that on the ground. In terms of making baskets, um, from things like containers, from things like ash and, and sweet chestnut, yeah, you're going to have to take something down. But I would try and coincide that. So you're going to, if you just take the bark off the tree, you'll kill it. Yeah. So what you want to do is think of, a re think of what else you can do with the wood. You know? So fell the, fell the tree and have, a, have some projects, you know, and it doesn't want to be too big because it gets too gnarly. You want smooth bark. So it's a small tree we're talking about. You're going to take the wood and use it for something else you take the bark and use it, and you use the whole thing. Yeah, um, that, that's, that's the responsible way of doing it. And maybe you don't have access to somewhere where you can go and fell stuff. Try and find a, a woodsman or a, um, a good, good contacts to get are uh, tree surgeons, even in towns, because they're taking down all sorts of stuff all the time, and a lot of it just goes in wood chippers. But if you, if you can become friendly with a tree surgeon and say, if you get any cherry, or ash, or you know, can I have some, please? You know, I want to carve some nice cherry spoons, or I want to make some ash bark uh, containers. Then you could get some of those materials for free. So that would that be something else I would think about, rather than just going hacking bits off. <laughs> cool. Well, I think that brings us to the end of the session. Um, potted little, potted little set of questions, but a good set of questions. 
Thank you very, very much for the questions. Thanks for your attention. I can just about see all of you. These lights are very, very bright. Um, it has been recorded. Um, we, you'll see what we turn it into when we put it online, but it won't look that different. So thank you very much. Next up, the inimitable Mr. Goodwin in five minutes. Stay for, stay for Ray Goodwin. I'm going to steal his tea now. I'm going to steal something. <laughs> thank you very much, guys and girls. Much appreciated. <laughs>